0: Rocking Chair, chair, chair session, session with Elisa, with Elisa, 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 Elisa Di
1: Batista
2: and
1: Maria, Maria Teresa, Teresa Barber. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another RCS Rocking Chair Sessions, Volume 130, with artist Felicia. Shizuko Carlisle. Welcome, Ms. Policia. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Um, Before we kick this session off, we'd like to thank our listeners and past donors for their support. Um, It truly is invaluable and it keeps this grassroots podcast going. Um, That being said, it's that time of the year again. Um, Give Miami Day, um, it will be taking place this Thursday, November 21st, and this will actually be Maria and I's first year participating. And we hope if you have any extra thing, you could potentially donate towards our SoundCloud slash website slash polaroids um, towards this cause we would be very grateful and return for that love and support um, you'll be getting either a surprise mug or a tote in the meal. Um, so speaking of support Felicia actually um, you won the 2019 cultural consortium congratulations on that Thank
2: you very much. Very very smooth segue. <laughs> was, it, was, it, was it your first time? Wow. applying? Very smooth. Smooth segue. <laughs> no, it's definitely not the first time I applied. I've been applying for years, so it was a great milestone. Amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, great milestone.
1: We normally I ask the to people say. that
2: have one and like how many times
1: they've applied because I think there's this, this false um, falsehood or false idea that you, you just apply the first time and you get it. But in reality, it's like you have to do it over and over and over again sometimes in order to just, you know.
2: Yeah, and I think that's true about a lot of opportunities. When you put your mind on one thing, if you apply, you're seen. Mm-hmm. And then you're seen again. And then you're seen again, and so it doesn't go unnoticed. And it's worth it in the end to just keep going for what you want.
1: Um, the exhibit, I believe, was in was it in Boca Raton at the MoCA at, in North at Miami. Museum of Contemporary oh, Art in, in North Day. Miami. Mm-hmm. What yeah. artworks did you select for for that exhibit? I didn't have a chance to make it out. I'm
2: sorry. The
1: exhibits, like what
2: pieces did you select? Um, I showed a short video. Mm. Um, that was the culmination of a project that started at Deering Estate. So there was a whole arc of that project and in the end um, we had a beautiful video and I worked with uh, NSL Dance Ensemble and Catherine Annie Hollingsworth who choreographed um, a movement piece To accompany the sculpture that I, um, I installed at Deering Estate for their contemporary their temporary contemporary art exhibition that they have every year, which is really great. It's like yes, it's always a great opportunity, and it's always full of surprises. Um, And in this case, it was especially rewarding for me. in so many ways. The, the piece was uh, called My Vessel is Healthy and I Request Free Practique. And it was a sculpture that, a fabric sculpture that was installed across two palm trees on um, in the landscape. So the wind is always phenomenal there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it was always active. It was always moving and it was always taking different shape all the time and in the end by July it exploded into a million pieces <laughs> no. the wind just yeah. had its way with it it was just it like- was expected yeah I, you know it, I, that's what I love about temporary exhibitions because you can take risks like that you expect to have for the work to have a beginning and an end mm-hmm. and um, playing inside of that time element with, with sculpture is very Integral to my work.
1: I was very curious because I'm glad you said the title of that piece your titles are just phenomenal <laughs> well, uh, thank In you. that they're not just like a singular word or two words I normally go for the two-word kind of thing But they're like full-on like phrases and ideas like how is it that you come up with a title for your artwork?
2: I rely a lot on literature and what I read and the references that are in the work so in this case um, I was looking at marine flags and what they mean Mm -hmm. um, and how I might use that somehow as content. And um, the yellow Q flag at one time represented um, a ship full of sick people. So when the ship would come through port or pass other ships, it was a way to communicate that there was disease on the ship, and this was back to this was European. This was um, strictly Western. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and we all know that marine flags are a common, you know, global co- uh, language now. now yeah. And given the context of being in the middle of the water or in the ocean, it made perfect sense to be inspired by that language, and. Um, and so what was interesting about the shift was that the the meaning shifted um, a couple hundred years later to mean that it was disease free, that it's healthy. my vessel is healthy. And I related that to a lot of issues that women deal with and that you know there's always this throughout history there's, There's this sense of society kind of defining what women are, you know, and and having control over their bodies and telling, you know, them what to do, (laughs) basically, essentially. And um, and so, you know, and feminist issues are very uh, important to me. So it was it was a combination of you know being attracted to the color yellow um, and being obsessed with yellow and then understanding its meaning in a in kind of a literal sense mm-hmm. um, functional way and also just like the irony in it of that you can any signifier can mean different things depending on what cultural context yeah. you know it's being used inside of so um, that just fascinated me and I felt that it was a moment in my um, growth as an artist to assert myself um, as female, you know, and be more vocal in my own way mm-hmm. about what that means and, and the context of that. So. It was also very deliberate to choose to work with when I when I chose to work with dancers um, to produce uh, the performance for the reception and then later the performance for the camera. Mm-hmm. It was very specific that I felt like I was creating a space for free practice and for women to to be free. You know, um, an all-female cast, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot, it's a mouthful to, to think about, but it's, it's layered that um, way for me. Did you have
1: a hand in the choreography of the performance, or advice, or any like kind of like emotions or tips that you told them you would hope that they could harness or evoke?
2: Well, Katherine and I had been working together in a, in a previous exhibition called Paradise Summit okay. Miami at Emerson Dorsch, cool. and that was twenty. That was last year's Basel. And so um, we were already having a very deep conversation based in philosophy and literature, and um, and and we, you know, the conversation led to how can we work together? How can I create sculpture that? Um, and, and that will accompany your dance and vice versa and how can you she's a traditional Haitian dancer and so how can she as a choreographer take uh, Haitian dance um, and and modify it so that it tells a different story so mm-hmm. for example the movements in the Uh, video are um, based in a dance that goes really fast Mm -hmm. and she slowed those movements down so much so that it became more um, like geological time and it became other other otherworldly for lack of I know that's a cheesy word but it's it's like you know it became um, had its own time, and for that first performance, she was reading a book called *The Hidden Life of Trees*. So, um, you know that the, the 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 concept of time, you know, was in there, embedded in both of our thoughts and processes. So. So it all very organically fell together. It was actually perfect because we were looking for the right opportunity to engage with each other's practices. And when I was invited to do this project at Deering, I said, well, you know, I'm sure they would need a performance for the reception. Let's do this. Let's figure it out. And it just came together so well. And the the skirts that she made out of the same fabric as the the sculpture drew, you know just married mm-hmm. the two forms perfectly and and I couldn't it was just magic mm-hmm. so and you don't get to have that kind of magic all the time you know those times are few and far between and when you get to have magic in your work it's just like you can hold on to that, and so we're still kind of vibrating from that. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Thinking
2: about future projects,
1: Maria.
0: And uh, I believe David Brisky was also um part of um that show at Emerson Torch. He he did the uh he played your sculptures basically, yeah. right? He like he
2: um he
0: made sound with your sculptures, yeah, which was also a big component in yes. your work.
2: Um, <laughs> David Brisky is a a an experimental musician and so when you know he he travels in the music scene and um and he he does um, like drone style music um and he's always played guitar uh, like horizontally with bows and you know he does this kind of sustained and and so um, when I was putting together my show for Emerson Dorsch I was already working with these materials I was working with um, I was working with uh, stainless steel boat railing and I was doing um, using stainless steel piano wire and making instruments you know, that were architectural that, that 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 were contingent on architecture and they were building sort of modifying architecture. And so um, I wanted to make a freestanding piece and I decided to make a piece for him. So the the design for the piece and the flow of the lines and the the, the form of it was literally designed so that he would play it specifically and so Mm -hmm. um uh, when we worked together you know i trusted him and his experience as a musician to be able to improvise with the thing that i made him for him and he um he did just an amazing job um carrying it out for the reception and for performance so you know performance and sculpture are sort of my key my my modalities yeah, you, you weave know
1: them. it's it's within through a lot a lot of your pieces like you you integrate them both seamlessly almost yeah,
2: yeah. The, the idea is to activate sculpture so that you know the there's a participatory aspect so that you know it has a life it, it doesn't you know, kind of get finished. There's no closure to it, you know. And that sculpture can be taken apart and put back together it to create something new for another purpose. Um, and I like that adaptability. I like the, It you know, it doesn't really even suit my lifestyle to, you know, create sculpture that is, you know, gonna just collect dust frankly Mm -hmm. so so you know it became like a solution to a problem i want to work as a sculptor but i also want to create an active environment that um people are involved in you know Mm -hmm. so it it not only like so what happens with my projects is that like a micro-community is created around it. And then, you know, you ha- you get to interact with all these different kinds of people and you get to work with them intimately, you know. And I, I just, I enjoy that so much more than um, necessarily being alone in the studio. Mm-hmm. I like that too, but it tends to be more so interior that you know, half, whatever, sometimes what I produce in a studio really doesn't get seen and it doesn't need to be, it's more like, um, sketching. Exercises, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that you are also giving, um, other artists a platform that are maybe not, that don't usually maybe have this, you know, um, the space or yeah there's their own space in a gallery setting like this you know maybe in another space i know david brisky i saw him perform at the at the charo orchids performance festival many times but so that he is in a gallery setting you you know performing or also the dancers so you are also like inviting other parts of community into you know a more like art Art setting, you know, or like mm-hmm. gallery setting. So it's kind of like you're you're making it more diverse and open through that as well,
2: right? Yeah, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And every like the context is always key. Mm-hmm. It it the context or the frame, you know, can make the piece. Yeah. So um, in David's case, for example, I felt that. You know where when I have seen him perform, you know, and I think about kind of like the the amazing part of what he does, which is the sound. You know, it's 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 uh, appreciated in a smaller, um, you know, kind of sideline audience. Mm-hmm. It's like um, a, a a, a smaller audience, I think, for experimental sound, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel, or music, and I feel like, you know, that needs to be seen, yeah, you know, um, on other levels mm-hmm. and other ways. So, um, it was complicated, and it 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 was very had a lot of intention. Yeah
0: yeah I agree because it's maybe like uh, people who will go to a noise festival or a performance festival would see it you know but yes. not maybe people who who, who who go to an art, art opening you know, and, art collectors ab-
2: absolutely and, yeah. yeah
0: absolutely but there was something happening in between that show um, at Emerson Dorsch and previous shows where you were actually the performer right mm-hmm. where you would play the instrument mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much movement you also incorporated but when did this shift happen from like going away of like you
2: being the performer to inviting
0: other people
2: Um. Um, it's been undulating back and forth so (sighs) So in 2013 I was at Cannonball residency downtown and I was there for actually 2 years Whoa. which is yeah. you know a long time to live with other artists and and in that situation and and I loved it because you I could close my door you know and then but then I would open my door in the morning and there would be amazing people in the kitchen having coffee and in their underwear and you know it was so intimate and wonderful and I knew that I would miss it when my time was up, so um, the community part. And I had, I I organized, um, I knew that I wanted to you know, perform more and do more active work, and so um, I organized a sound brunch, and I had 17 artists and a table and four-course meal, and each of the courses um, introduced a new sound element. So, but the but the the guests were all artists, and and they. Um, you know over the course of over each course they got looser and looser there was a lot of vodka (laughs) and um and they you know uh they had new sounds to play with new things to clink around and you know by the end they were kind of doing like a jam session and (laughs) with their metal chopsticks and glass wine glasses and you know whatever was on the table like hydrophones in the in the ice bucket you know and things like that and you know they were playing and I got to watch and observe what you know how they could loosen up if you had the right gave put the right things there and so um at the time I was actually in two studios and I was moving from Cannonball to a space above Harry's Pizza in the design district and so uh, then it then I started to do um, um, whiskey and noise nights and I would buy a giant bottle of whiskey and invite people over and I had piano strung piano strings all around the studio and it, and you know I got to kind of watch what, it brought out in people to have, like, to be uninhabited, to be no audience, you know, Mm -hmm. and just given toys to play with. And that sense of play, you know, became serious studio work. And I realized By the time, like, one guy was left, you know, I had done many of these nights, you know, and people eventually would, like, come up from the street because they could hear it, and they would, you know, join in, and things would happen, and it would be very spontaneous, And then the last thing that happened, there was a guy visiting. I won't say who it was, but there was like this karaoke moment at 3 a.m., you know, and he was the only one left and he was entertaining himself with the karaoke. And I was sitting and watching it happen and I was like, okay, now. Now I've done the research that I can do. This is where we've devolved to, you know, and I can do something else. I can take it public. I can Mm -hmm. do something with it. So I had the opportunity to um, create a site-specific piece for Vizcaya Museum and Gardens, and they gave me uh, one of the concrete gazebos, and I turned it into a nine-string instrument, um and inside and stringed instruments so the columns had um I out were outfitted with little interior columns that could oh, be nice. played. So I played from inside of the birdcage and um for two thousand art basil wow. people and that was that was like my coming out of, you know, um we're talking about therapy, like that moment when you're eight years old and you fail miserably at your piano recital because you forgot everything because you got stage fright. And, you know, that terrible traumatic moment that like stops you from being, you know, that creative happy child and turns you into a, you know, worried and stressed out person, you know, and then you have to deprogram that person and, you know, and eventually get there to where you can be uninhibited again. And it took a lot of bravery, but it was, it was the right move and I needed to do that, to prove to myself that I could, Mm -hmm. you know, and so... So, um that was a breakthrough moment. You know, I understood what the strings could do. I had tested a lot in the studio, obviously. I could, you know, control it. It was like learning how to paint, you know, and control the medium. And so that's why I kept it in the studio for 2 years. But when it was time and I felt like, "Okay, I can control this and I know what I can do with it." now we're going to make ready. something cool mm-hmm. you know so so the viscaio piece was awesome and it and the, the sound projected you know throughout the entire garden and on into the ocean and I couldn't be there you know just to feel it but I knew it was happening you know and I knew that I was in the center of it and I was making it happen you know and people were into it you know, and so, so. I did that for a while and I would do my own performances and then, you know, once I found, you know, uh, I need something, I need a challenge to keep me excited, you know, and I felt like, okay, now I can, now that I have control, let me take it away. Let me add some kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. other element into it that kind of takes some of that control away and gives it back to a community. So, so, you know, um, I think... I think shortly after that, there was a show called "Sounding Room" at Locus Projects, where um, I collaborated with a whole bunch, a group of friends, really. And that exhibition was a beast, but it was it was like seventeen exhibitions inside of one six-week show, you know, mm-hmm. because. We, uh, my friend Valerie George, who teaches sculpture up at University of West Florida, she was my organizing partner and we invited, we each invited friends to come like every two weeks and uh, improvise with us. So we would collect for one day in the gallery and we would um, talk about what we wanted to do, what like, our own practices and then the next day we'd be performing for the public and we had created you know an environment of of different toys you know for people to play with sculptures and um what kinds of stuff. At one point there was a car of uh, uh a Monte Car uh, uh what's it called tricked out Monte Carlo that could you know so and there were like um oh, there so were contact micro- microphones on the hydraulic so I think when I remember that car <laughs> <laughs> I have were you me. there? I think
0: I remember that yeah, car. <laughs> because that
2: was the loudest night. There was yeah. a there was a there was a sound a, a noise artist from New York who was like he lit it up and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. It was crazy loud and almost damaging, yeah. <laughs> almost dangerous. But it was, you know, there were like there was so much creativity inside of that that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was part organizing, it was part curating, it was part participation, it was part being an artist, and a lot of things came through in a very short time.
1: Lots of hats.
2: Yeah.
0: When did you first start working with like, uh, you know, like you said, piano strings? Well, you know, when when did first this element of sound sound yeah. came in come into your sculpture? Was it something
1: you already did, and in- or even in early childhood, Like, when did you start gravitating towards that?
2: Well, it's an interesting question because I was always um, working with time-based media. So sound wasn't new, but there was a breakthrough moment when um, I, I thought the form should you know, somehow speak to my history. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so you know, as a child, it was true. I was that child that, you know, failed miserably at the piano recital and scarred for life after, you know. And it was it, it was like when, as a kid, learning classical music, you know, how to read music, I knew how to read it and I could see it and I could move my hands in the motions that made the sounds, and I could play what I read, but I couldn't hear it. And so so that that kind of classical training that was all about sight was what I was, like, bumping up against, you know, because as a visual artist, Again, we prioritize sight and, you know, that whole issue of art being visually oriented, it's even called visual art, you know, in the language, when in fact um, it, it should, I felt my work should excite all the senses, if it could, you know, so I tried a lot of different forms that were not, strictly visual so um but when I brought the piano strings into the sculpture I I was just thinking you know now that I've forgotten how to read music I cannot play music from sheet anymore because I've forgotten how to so now I can start hearing sound as an artist Mm -hmm. and I can uh I can be free of any preconceived notion you know so it wasn't like I wanted to be a musician it was that I really wanted to hear sound um in an abstract way so and I really wanted to that to be a body experience more than a visual experience so yeah I mean there's a visual element that I'll probably never lose because I don't I don't think pure sound necessarily is what you know. I'm I gravitate towards, mm-hmm. but I, but um, it was that moment when I said I wanna I wanna look at the piano as a sculptor. Mm. You know, how do you get piano strings? So then I googled piano strings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you get long rolls of piano wire? <laughs> but also the performative
1: <laughs> aspect, because I mean, where where was this um, performance located? Where was Witch. your which? The the performance
2: that you um you were traumatized
1: when by I was a as kid. a child. Yeah.
2: I had um I was going to win a giant award. I was compete it was a competition. It was a Florida State competition and I had made it to to Tallahassee and I thought, you know, I mean I was under so much pressure oh. and my mother I love my mother and she um but she was very hard on me. She pushed it really hard that you know that the discipline of the piano and um to the point where it just kind of always made me nervous. You know, I couldn't like loosen up and be with it. It was like uh, uh I don't know how to set like I don't you know, know how to do it. But if I'm she like, Look had at you the now. best intentions. She wanted yeah. me to be it was good. An she saw that for I was you. gonna be it, yeah. good. Mm-hmm. You know, and she wanted me to be good. It's almost like a Like a baseball dad, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, like, you get to the state competition, and your very working class parents take you all the way to Tallahassee from Pensacola, Florida, you know, which is a major big deal, and you know, and you just freeze, Mm -hmm. you know. So, everything that I had practiced for that I had learned, you know, and then to go like. It was too big. It was a grand piano on a beautiful stage with velvet, you know. I remember it vividly. And, you know, I remember the test, and I remember having to perform, and I just... Froze and I didn't remember anything I had studied or or memorized. Yeah. And if you're think if you're working from memory and you're memorizing things, you're not learning them. Mm-hmm. You're just going through the motions. So you can you you might be able to read the thing and you know how, what finger goes where when mm-hmm. you know. Um, all of those things, you know, but are you listening and are you hearing and are you learning and can you do it again without seeing it? Does that make sense? Yeah. So. So. It totally makes sense because I feel like there are two ways to learn
0: an instrument, right? You can learn an instrument by just playing it. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. You know, you just play it and you learn how it sounds, yes. And then you you teach basically, or you you either teach yourself or you are being taught to listen to the instrument, yes. Or like I was also classically trained mm-hmm. um, accordion, mm-hmm. but um jingle, that's why <laughs> jingle. Uh, but but it was also like almost it's almost impossible for me to play the accordion the way that I would usually would play a guitar with like a lot of freedom and I can make things up and with mm-hmm. the accordion like always being trained of following the rules and following the sheet music and i played in an orchestra so then you really have to follow and the you rules really you really know? have to follow the rules. It's so you
1: just threw those out because i'm like you're still performing but a, yeah i think that is you're like still that, on
0: stage people are still watching you, you.
1: deconstructed
0: yeah. the piano in a way that freed you up to not see the music the sheet music anymore yeah, you know you, you, exactly, you took that all yeah.
2: away and i think that is yeah that was a liberation yeah yeah i took my Mm. power back i absolutely little mini felicia you would (laughs) be so proud Mm. yeah Yeah, i always wanted to like myself when i got old so (laughs) um but that yeah that's what happened and i and um yeah, so it's like breaking rules, you know. I've been called defiant before and I don't I almost feel like it's a compliment at this point. It's like well, you know, I'm making up my own rules. I'm making up my own thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's what happened. Mm-hmm.
1: The act of tinkering and of making and adding um, different materials, like collaging them together, because you do, like you mentioned, um, the steel and the strings and the, in um, one case, fabric. Like, how is it that you select a material prior to creating an artwork?
2: Um. Well, there's no set formula, but uh, but my my materials are always based on what they can do and how and what they mean, you know. So, if I have an idea, you know, for example, I've never made a, a fabric piece or a tapestry, you know, ever. Um and I had and I contracted it to be sewn, but um it was the appropriate material for the site and the context and the and the ideas that I was having, you know. I could have done strings, I could have done sound piece, I could have done, you know, a whole lot of other things mm-hmm. that are in my toolbox, but context and site are very important to me. And being specific to a site's history and its meaning and understanding it before I enter it as an artist is very important to me. So um, I don't, I, I find, and often, I learn from the site. You know, if I'm given an opportunity um, to respond to a site as an artist, then I take that very seriously and I consider everything that I can, you know, about the meaning of the place and and my intervention with it. Because I feel like, you know, that piece could be shown inside of a museum or ga- gallery context but it would be dead it wouldn't be activated by the wind it wouldn't have time it would be standing still to be looked at once again and that's just not really my jam you know I work with a commercial gallery and I and luckily you know my my gallerists are are extremely open you know and they're they're in love with art the same way I am and you know, so we don't have the kind of contentious relationship that often people can have with commercial galleries and, like, production mm-hmm. and doing, you know, the thing that sells. Making. And so, you know, I've I've fallen into the right hands in that regard because I can't work any other way. And so... So, you know, if the if if the deering sculpture still existed, if it hadn't been blown to bits, then <laughs> then, you know, what would it be? Would it how would it live inside of a context? It would be like a memory of a thing. It wouldn't be the thing. Mm.
0: You know, and like maybe a remnant like you have Mm -hmm. performance remnants or like leftovers kind of
2: leftovers and Mm -hmm. you can leave them there to look at if you want to it's a Mm -hmm. it's a famous strategy Mm -hmm. you know it's it's very you know part of the um uh, since of, like, 19 since or, 1960 yeah. you know since the 60s yeah. since you know there's residue I mean you can trace it back to Eve Klein you can you know mm-hmm. you can trace it back historically that you know there's residue of an action yeah. you know or, there's, or a photograph or a exactly, video or, exactly, or like or documentation you know, and or a or clothing right. or
0: something you know mm-hmm.
2: exactly and so now at this point that has become a convention and mm-hmm. you can follow you know a b and c i have a performance okay i had some things and i did some things and now those things are sitting there and i'm not there and something happened Mm -hmm. wow you know and so the viewer knows the audience knows something happened here okay but i want to talk about i want them to have the sense that there's the potential for something to happen Mm -hmm. so i want i want my audience to want to touch the thing and see what it sounds like Mm -hmm. i want a new thought to happen, you know, rather than looking like in the past. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and that's the same attitude towards sculpture. I just, I don't want to see it as a past residue of some process that I went through. I just, I want to see it as potential. Mm
1: -hmm. When did you decide um, that um, you wanted to go to grad school? Or I should say more like SFA, I right? Always, Your school. Yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. Um well excited. She's like, I, she went to my alma mater. Well <laughs> I didn't say that. I
0: said S F A.
2: Yes, we went to the same school, thank you, universe for San Francisco Art Institute. Yeah. Um, because it, it was it was the, my teachers were the best, you know, influences and they helped you know help me understand my lineage and understand you know what was possible and um i miss a certain west coast discussion and conversation and vernacular honestly and i'm sure you do too and uh, you know so we kind of have to like remember that we have something special you know that you know and and that we're not crazy you know that there's precedent <laughs> for the way that Brothers. we others. <laughs> there's precedent for our practices so um uh but wait what was the question about what what, did, what took you out to the west coast oh and how i went to gra- okay well um i was a kid when i was a teenager one of my friends Uh, moved to Washington State and when we were we were very young and I was flying out to see her and you know so I got to at least taste what the West Coast was like at a pretty young age and um, and then uh, I I had a dream that I was going to go to the University of Oregon and learn how to make be a master metalsmith I thought I was going to be a craft artist nice. and um, and I, I went home to Florida to stay with my mom to save the money to go to school and then I realized how hard it was to, to save money and work and stuff so I stayed in my hometown and went to University of West Florida and received my BFA and so I always knew that I, I mean maybe not as a young young child but Um, when I went to college, you know, and I had been around art. My brother-in-law, my older sister, was married to an artist in D.C. And so um, I saw him practice and I saw him paint and sculpt and do art. And he would take me to the museums when I was a kid during the summertime. And, you know, so I wasn't, I I didn't not know about art. Mm. And in fact, one of the first... Pieces that were uh, affected me so deeply was a Namjoon Pike uh, video wall at the Hershorn Museum when I was like 12 or 13. And so I just always remember, and of course, like also remembering Namjoon and thinking about like that history and then. So I ended up studying at SFAI with Sharon Grace who was a student of Nam June and but I always knew like after undergrad I said to myself get as far away from home as you possibly can so I did end up in Washington state I did end up in Seattle and um there I worked for Um, an art gallery, and I waited tables on a ship and, uh, like, a dinner boat and, you know, all kinds of jobs to try to make ends meet, you know, with only an undergraduate degree. But I needed... I felt like it was important for me to, like, take the time out of school to make sure that a $100,000 education was, like, the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. you know? And I knew that I knew enough from undergrad art history to know that California people were my people, but I didn't know how I was gonna get there. And so it took about four years to to like, you know, finally just say, this is where I wanna be. So I applied to SFAI and, um Maybe CalArts, I can't remember. I might no, I might have seen CalArts. I was very intent that that SFai was my school mm-hmm. and those were my teachers and however I got to be there. So I moved to San Francisco before they accepted me. And I was like, I'm gonna move to San Francisco and I'm just gonna keep knocking on the door until they let me in, you know? And so that's I what I did. An they won't take no for an answer. I'll just keep going. I keep you know do applying and it it did they did let me in and and here we are but but i knew from art history you know making specifically from the feminist art history and the 60s and 70s and that that history that was my thing that i needed to know that i belonged there and even though Throughout graduate school was a really tough time, and I didn't know myself, and I was crazy, and went through a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it still didn't change like that. I knew those were my people, so, so I think fondly of my influences, and I'm really happy that I get to take that with me in some form, you know. Um, but I couldn't stay in California. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I, I really wanted to. I thought I would go back, and that was my life, and you know. But peop, but the people started squatting in my apartment as soon as I left. So. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> and that was it. And that was it, you know. And my mom was sick, and everything. So you life know, happens, part of coming yeah. home, coming home was about reconnecting to her, and 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 seeing her through the end of her life. And and then I was free to, you know, come to Miami. By then, I had friends in Miami already.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah.
0: So, yeah. I think it's also, like, what... what SFAI also kind of gives you like the tools that you need so you can also take that spirit out into the world in a way you know so it's yeah. kind of like you um I was just there back last week I was there and uh-huh. I was kind of like filling my batteries charging my batteries <laughs> with SFVI again like mm-hmm. vibes and mm-hmm. and I feel like it also gives you the tools to kind of really keep that in mind you know keep that you know, vision or that freedom or that, that also conceptual rigor, rigor or whatever. Yeah, how mm-hmm. it, yeah you, you you say it like this. Mm-hmm. It, it's really uh, rigor, you know, and it's mm-hmm. kind of like these, the voices of your teachers kind of in your head. I had Sharon Grace too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah. I took Sharon Grace yeah. every semester, mm-hmm. every single semester. And all all my classmates would complain because she was 45 minutes late every single day, but she would bring pecan pie you know so and coffee so why not wait and I would I didn't care if she was telling the same story over and over again I was listening and she was the only woman on faculty at that time, and for many years, and I listened, and she told me about how she, you know, sat at the table with all men all the time, and I listened, and I, you know, I I looked at how she thought, and at the time I was also really into technology and you know I thought that's where my practice would go after Mm -hmm. I left there I taught digital Mm -hmm. in the digital practice realm and for seven years and I you know and and that's kind of where my head was at but then practically you know it's a very expensive habit to to try to work with technology, new mm-hmm. technology, yeah. you know? latest, yeah. so that's a, you know, and it's kind of overrated, like, you, you know, there was a moment when you could do it, but it's not so, it's not the same now, yeah, you know? it's just a matter of fact now, but there was a moment when it was a thing, mm-hmm. you know, that you could kind of, it was a subject and a format at, you know, and a material at the same time, and so that, that was good, but anyway I think what SFAI was best at was um, and new genres was my department and I think I think what it was best at was having learning how to do critique in to me in my opinion the right way to do critique in the sense that you are there to tell me what you see Mm -hmm. and you're not there to tell me what you want to see and you're there for me to learn from as an artist what you see because if if I can see through your eyes then I can have some insight on what it whether or not I'm putting what I want to see there Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult to say that and have it sink in, you know, to students and, and other artists, you know, mm-hmm. honestly. And um, so I, I think, um, yeah, that was the best thing that I got from uh, that school and that time was just the ability to, to sit with an artist and not try to make their work you know for them not tell them have you tried a b and c you know but to tell them what i see and that's more generous i think and harder than telling somebody but did you try to the little to the left or a little to the right did you put some more you know medium in it or whatever you know it's Nobody needs a how-to lesson, you know. You, you just wanna. I, I just wanna know if you see what I see, and if you don't, then I gotta go back to the studio and keep mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
1: Okay. Maria has her final question for we're you already at the end. We were like
0: racing through it. The very last <sighs> question is: You've been sitting in a magical rocking chair, and it, it grants you three wishes you can wish for anything and everything but you have to say them out loud <laughs> for them to come true these are the rules of the rocking chair um, we didn't make them up
2: okay i'm gonna say i'm gonna tell you i'm gonna use this to to yes what i wish for in 2020
1: Yes. Okay. So it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Cause this is the time it's fall. You yeah, know, you get, totally. you get, you start should, planning, yeah. you know? So 2020, I want to go to the volcanoes, Hawaiian volcano, Kilauea residency. And that's one wish. Cross your fingers. The next wish is actually, um, that I, nobody knows it, but I've launched, um, an artist in residence program in, Oregon. Wow. On a farm with and Robert Chambers and Metta are, Um it's their family farm mm-hmm. and it's been in the family since 1888. And it's the most incredible place, and so um, so I would like to see. I would wish that it can find funding, and that it can grow and um, be something that I do. Um, that's what I'm on successfully. So that's wish number two. Mm-hmm. And one more. Okay, and the third wish. <sighs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's your last one. You want oh, to think about that
2: one. Um my third wish is for everybody that I know to have an amazing year and love me more every day cuz i need everybody to love me and um and that everybody's healthy and happy and successful and the fucking president gets fired <laughs> yes Thank you. You're
1: well,
0: wishing we, God you and everyone we, else. we love you
1: for coming. We love you for spending your time with us. And we love you. <laughs> we I love, love you. all the things that you're doing, and we wish you nothing but the best, and hopefully the rocking chair grants. One, if not all, your wishes. All my wishes. All my wishes. <laughs> well, it's gonna of granted. You just have to wait
2: for it. <laughs> um, thank you, oh, Maria, God.
1: for sitting with us. Thank you to thank our you. listeners. Um, give Miami Days this Thursday, just to plug that in again. And thank you once again, Felicia, for visiting us. Thank here. you. Bye. Bye, Bye Felicia.
2: <laughs> you had to say it.
0: <laughs>